Today I'm continuing a series on taking the limits off of God. And I tell you, this has transformed my life. And I believe that as I share these things, it's also touching your life and that we are going to see a lot of people begin to start taking the limits off of God. I promise you that you need to go over these things. You know, this is something that the Lord spoke to me January the 31st, 2002. And I have gone over this and over it. And I made a point of saying that even in 2014, 12 years later, God spoke to me and told me I'm beginning to limit Him again by my small thinking. It's not the kind of thing that you just deal with one time and it's over. Our tendency is to, you know, be like water and, and seek the lowest level, the path of least resistance. It takes effort to see your dreams and visions come to pass. It takes effort to keep yourself stirred up. You know, you can't just coast. You can't just lay on your couch and be a couch potato and do nothing. To keep the flame of God and the vision alive on the inside of you, it takes effort. You have to pursue the things of God. If you don't pursue it, you won't get it. And so I've described already that I had just reached a place where things were working well. We were seeing people's lives touched and I just got lazy and the Lord told me I needed to quit being lazy. I needed to get with it and stir myself up. So that was one thing that was hindering God. But now I want to move into some other things and this is really where my big problem was that, you know, I had a fear of failure. Now you might voice this differently. You could, you could call it a fear of risk. Most people just want to play things safe. They don't like to take risk. And yet you aren't going to accomplish anything if you don't take some risk. A turtle never gets anywhere if he doesn't stick his neck out. Amen. <laughs> you aren't going to go anywhere in life if you aren't willing to take risk. You know, I had one employee that uh, after he quit working for me, he went to work for this big corporation and he was, you know, he was making a living. It wasn't a huge amount of money, but he was doing okay and he was making a living. And then they wanted to downsize and stuff, the company did. And so they were offering this early retirement and these big lump sum type of things. But... Um, this man, he honestly felt like God had given him a goal to go in a different direction. He wanted to start his own business, but there was risk involved with that. He came to me and asked me about it. And I said, you know what? Once you say that God told you to do this, once you play the God card, then you just need to do what God told you to do. And I said, forget the risk. Just do what God put in your heart. But he had this lump sum. If he would take this early retirement, if he would go the way that the corporation wanted him to do. And anyway, out of a fear of taking risk, he took this safe way out. And did you know it didn't work? The guy wound up, it's a long story, but the guy wound up, he's not even with us today. He's dead. And it just was a destructive, terrible choice that he made. And he did that because he just took the path of least resistance. He tried to play it safe. And I believe that this is what's happening to a lot of people. I've actually read a survey and they, they did a survey among people as they were dying, their you know, last wishes and stuff, and they asked them, what would you do differently? And nearly every single person said, I would have taken more risk. I would have stretched myself more. I would have gone for it. I played it too safe. And I think that that's what the average person does. They're afraid of failure. 
Let me share a passage of Scripture. This is one of my favorite passages over in 2 Kings chapter 7. And uh, there was a famine in the land of Samaria and the city was besieged by the uh, Syrians and the famine was so bad that they were selling animal dung for these huge prices and people were eating animal dung. There actually is an instance in the sixth chapter where these two ladies ate their own children, cannibalized them. It was a severe drought. And in the midst of the thing, the, um, there were four lepers that were outside of the city gates and they, of course, were starving to death too. And finally, they came to this conclusion. It says in verse 3, this is 2 Kings 7, 3, And there were four leprous men at the entering end of the gate, and they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians and if they save us alive, we shall live and if they kill us, we shall but die. <laughs> I love that. Boy, this is impeccable logic. I just think this is awesome. You know, if most people could use this logic today, I guarantee you it would change your life. But here they were in a situation where if they stayed where they were, they were going to die. If they went backwards into the city where the famine was, they were going to die. If they went forward, if they went out to the Syrians, well, then there was a possibility of them dying, but it was the only chance they had of survival. They didn't know for sure that the Syrians would kill them. It's possible the Syrians had let them go. Or, you know, there was at least an option there, but there was huge risk. The potential was that they would die. But you know, the truth was they were going to die anyway. If something didn't happen, they were going to die of starvation. And so they had to take a risk. And because of it, these people who were the outcast I mean, they were the zeros. Nobody wanted them. In the city, everybody was dying. But they wouldn't even let these lepers come into the city. They put them outside of the gate. They were just outcasts. There was nothing good in their life. But when they went out to the Syrians and took a risk, they went out there and found out that the Lord had made the Syrians to hear a sound like an army coming. They thought that the Israelites had hired the Egyptians to fight against them. And these people took off and left and their fires were still burning. Their food was still on the fires. They still had their gold, their silver, their raiment there. They left their camels. They left their donkeys. They left everything. The people just ran in total panic. And these men who were starving to death all of a sudden came into such abundance that they could eat all that they wanted. They got the silver and the gold and the raiment and they went and buried them, dug holes and buried them and hid them. And they, they just gorged themselves. And finally, they said, you know, we aren't doing well. This is a day of glad tidings. We need to go back and let the people in the city know that the Syrians are fled. And so they went back and told them. They checked it out. And these lepers who were zeros went to being heroes in just a matter of minutes. They became wealthy. They became the ones that everybody was thanking them for bringing them this good news. And all because somebody was willing to take a risk. And you know, I just, I see people like this all of the time, that they are miserable where they are. They're dying. 
THEY MAY NOT BE DYING PHYSICALLY AT THAT MOMENT, BUT THEY'RE DYING SPIRITUALLY. THEY'RE DYING EMOTIONALLY. AND YET THEY'RE AFRAID OF DOING SOMETHING DIFFERENT. YOU KNOW, I TRAVEL AND I HOLD THESE CONFERENCES AND WE ALWAYS ADVERTISE OUR BIBLE COLLEGE AND TRY AND ENCOURAGE PEOPLE TO COME AND BE A PART OF IT BECAUSE I'VE SEEN THE WAY IT CHANGES PEOPLE'S LIVES. AND THIS IS ONE OF THE THINGS THAT I'LL TELL THEM ALL OF THE TIME. THAT I THINK IT WAS ALBERT EINSTEIN THAT SAID IT'S A DEFINITION OF INSANITY TO DO THE SAME THING AND EXPECT DIFFERENT RESULTS. AND YET THERE ARE PEOPLE THAT COME TO MY MEETINGS. THEY WANT SOMETHING DIFFERENT. THEY WANT CHANGE. THEY WANT TO HAVE A VIBRANT RELATIONSHIP WITH THE LORD WHICH THEY DON'T HAVE. THEY WANT TO FIND OUT WHAT THEIR DESTINY IS. THEY WANT TO ACCOMPLISH SOMETHING. THEY WANT TO MAKE THEIR LIFE CHANGE. THEY ARE JUST DISSATISFIED WITH THE WAY IT IS AND YET THEY'RE AFRAID TO DO ANYTHING DIFFERENTLY. THAT'S INSANE TO DO THE SAME THING AND EXPECT DIFFERENT RESULTS. AND I'VE BEEN TO SOME PLACES YEAR AFTER YEAR AFTER YEAR AND SEEN PEOPLE COME, EXPRESS THEIR FRUSTRATION TO ME and, AND I PRAY WITH THEM AND THEN THE NEXT YEAR THEY COME BACK AND THEY'RE IN THE SAME SITUATION. WHY? MOST OF THE TIME IT'S BECAUSE THEY'RE AFRAID TO TAKE A RISK. THEY'RE AFRAID TO CHANGE. YOU KNOW, THEY'VE GOT A JOB. THEY'VE GOT SECURITY. AND THEY'RE JUST AFRAID TO CHANGE. YOU KNOW, THE ISRAELITES, WHEN THEY CAME OUT OF THE LAND OF EGYPT, ONE OF THE THINGS THAT LIMITED GOD AND KEPT THEM FROM ENTERING INTO THE PROMISED LAND WAS BECAUSE THEY WERE LOOKING BACK ABOUT WHAT THEY HAD IN EGYPT. THEY SAID, WE MISSED THE LEEKS AND THE GARLICS. THEY WERE SLAVES. THEY WERE OPPRESSED. THEY WERE BEING BEATEN. THEY DIDN'T HAVE ANY MONEY, BUT THEY WERE PROVIDED WITH FOOD IN EXCHANGE FOR THEIR SLAVE LABOR. AND DID YOU KNOW WHAT? THERE'S SOME PEOPLE THAT JUST... THEY WOULD RATHER HAVE THE SECURITY OF SLAVERY THAN RUN THE RISK OF GOING OUT AND MAKING IT ON THEIR OWN. I'VE ACTUALLY READ ACCOUNTS OF PEOPLE IN, the, in AMERICA WHEN uh, PRESIDENT LINCOLN FREED THE SLAVES AND WHEN THE CIVIL WAR WAS WON AND THE SLAVES WERE SET FREE, THERE ARE ACTUAL EXAMPLES OF SLAVES STILL WANTING TO BE A SLAVE AND GOING BACK TO THEIR MASTER AND WANTING TO LIVE UNDER SLAVERY BECAUSE EVEN THOUGH IT WASN'T ABUNDANT AND IT WASN'T FREE, IT WAS SECURE. THEY WERE GUARANTEED SECURITY. THEY HAD GUARANTEED FOOD. THEY HAD GUARANTEED HOUSING. IT WAS TERRIBLE HOUSING. It, NONE OF IT WAS ABUNDANT, BUT THERE'S SOME PEOPLE THAT WOULD TRADE FREEDOM AND POTENTIAL FOR SLAVERY ANY DAY. IT MAY NOT BE SLAVERY LIKE THE AMERICAN SLAVES WERE IN BONDAGE, BUT YOU ARE IN SLAVERY TO A JOB. YOU'RE ENSLAVED TO ALL KINDS OF THINGS BECAUSE YOU'RE AFRAID TO TAKE A RISK. YOU'RE AFRAID TO GET OUT THERE AND FAIL. YOU KNOW, I BELIEVE THAT THE BIGGEST FAILURE IS TO DO NOTHING. I THINK THAT THE BIGGEST FAILURE... WHEN PEOPLE TRY SOMETHING AND THEY FAIL, I DON'T THINK THAT THAT'S FAILURE. YOU KNOW, THE LORD PRAYED FOR uh, PETER AND SAYS, SATAN HAS DESIRED TO HAVE YOU THAT HE MIGHT SIFT YOU AS WHEAT, BUT I HAVE PRAYED FOR YOU THAT YOUR FAITH FAIL NOT. MOST PEOPLE THINK, WELL, PETER'S FAITH DID FAIL. HE ACTUALLY DENIED THE LORD THREE TIMES THAT HE EVEN KNEW THE LORD, BUT JESUS PRAYED THAT HIS FAITH WOULDN'T FAIL. HIS FAITH FALTERED. SOME PEOPLE WOULD LOOK AT THAT AND SEE THEY HAVE A SHORT-TERM MENTALITY AND THINK, WELL, HE FAILED. HE DENIED THE LORD THREE TIMES. BUT IF YOU LOOK AT HIS LIFE OVER A WHOLE, HE WAS ABLE TO RECOVER FROM THAT. AND HE WENT ON TO BECOME A PILLAR OF THE CHURCH IN JERUSALEM. AND HE WENT ON AND HE WAS... THE TRADITION HAS IT THAT HE WAS CRUCIFIED UPSIDE DOWN IN ROME BECAUSE HE DIDN'T COUNT HIMSELF WORTHY TO BE CRUCIFIED IN THE SAME MANNER THAT JESUS WAS. SO THEY HUNG HIM UPSIDE DOWN AND CRUCIFIED HIM. 
Peter did recover. Peter was not a failure. Even though his faith faltered, I believe it's incorrect to say that it failed because Jesus prayed that it wouldn't fail. So what I'm saying here is that, see, some people are afraid that they will fail, but the biggest failure is to do nothing. If you go out and try and do what God has placed on your heart and fail, quote unquote fail, that's not a failure unless you quit right there. If you get up and go again, you fell forward. You failed forward. And you know what? It, we all fail. We all make mistakes. We all have things that we're, we're learning and, and nobody does everything perfectly. If you're afraid of, of a risk, if you're afraid of taking a chance, well then you're going to be just like these lepers. What are you going to do? Sit there until you die? Are you going to stay there until you totally quench the fire that God has placed in your heart? Until you totally lose the vision of what God has given you? You know what? You need to take a risk. You are never going to accomplish anything if you're afraid of risk. And I meet people all of the time that this just paralyzes them. You know, the reason I bring this up is to say that when the Lord spoke to me in 2002, this was one of the reasons that I was limiting God. I didn't want to run the risk. I've said this before, but I started in ministry in 68 and until 2000, that's 32 years, I had been fighting the fear of failure and, and just on the brink of being out of the ministry. I had many people tell me, you ought to quit. You just aren't made for this. I mean, people stayed away from my churches and ministry by the thousands. And you know what? It was just a constant pressure. But then when we went on television, we started seeing success and I was afraid of pushing the envelope and getting out of that spot that for two years had just been awesome where things were working, there wasn't the pressure, and I didn't want to get back into that place where I was running the risk of failure. And so it was a fear of failure, a fear of risk that literally just kept me limiting God. And when God spoke to me about this, I guarantee you I had to repent of it and turn away from it. Again, when I go to these meetings, you know, I have a lot of people that they come up and they say that God has spoken to them about coming to Karis Bible College. And so they want to come, but then they will start giving me all of these reasons that, you know, they're only five years away from retirement. They've got this nice home. They got a great job. They don't know if they can get a job when they come out here and on and on and on and on it goes. They talk about their grandkids. They talk about their family. They talk about you know, just all kinds of things. And it's a fear of doing something different. It's a fear of taking a risk. They aren't content where they are. They have a word from God, but they just don't want to run the risk. I'm telling you, you cannot succeed doing that. If you go look at people, even in the secular world, it doesn't have to be a Christian. It doesn't have to be in the Bible. But you just go look at people who are, you know, quote unquote successes, people who are millionaires, billionaires. Nearly every person that I've ever studied like that has failed more than one time. But they get up, they fail forward, and they just keep going. And eventually they learn through those things and then they become a quote unquote success. You can't find people who the world calls real successes that haven't taken risk. Many of them have not only taken risks, but they've failed, and yet they just get up and go again. 
You know, the Bible says over in the book of Psalms, it says a righteous man will fall seven times, but he'll get back up. If you are truly seeking the Lord, you don't need to be afraid of taking risks. You've got to get rid of this fear. You've got to get rid of playing it safe. You're playing it way too safe. You are going to have to stretch yourself. And this is one of the things that the Lord spoke to me, that I was just afraid of failing. I was afraid of, you know, not only what it would do for me, but I didn't want to misrepresent the Lord. I didn't want to tell people that God has told me to expand our television and to reach and to do all of this and then it not come to pass. Not only would I have mud on my face, but then I felt like it would be giving a black eye to the Lord. I was saying, thus saith the Lord, and, and yet if it didn't come to pass... You know, there's just all kinds of ways you can rationalize things and say that I can't take these risks. But I'm telling you, a fear of failure, a fear of risk is a uh, limit to what God wants you to do. When the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, God had told Moses that He wanted to bring the people out. And so that was a huge step right there. There was a fear of what's Pharaoh going to do. And sure enough, it got worse before it got better. This is another lesson that I've learned that just because God has given you a word doesn't mean that the devil is going to vacate, that he's not going to fight you. Matter of fact, it's usually just the opposite. You start doing what God called you to do, you're going to come, uh, uh, you're going to find resistance. You're going to find things fighting against you. And so it's not going to be just all roses just because you're heading in the direction that God wants you to go. There's going to be effort involved with it. But when the children of Israel came out, God didn't bring them out to let them die in the wilderness. It was so He could bring them into the promised land. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. God hasn't put things in your heart to see you fail. He wants to bring you in. He wants to bring you into that promised land. He wants to see His will fulfilled. He wants to flow through you and use you. I can guarantee you that God doesn't make anybody a failure. God has never created a dud. It is not God's will that any of you just flounder. God wants you to succeed. But for you to get from where you are to where God wants you to be, Yes, you are going to have to take some risk. There are no guarantees. I can guarantee it's God's will for you to prosper, but it's going to take cooperation on your part and you could fail. You could get out there and fail and that is a possibility, but you're going to have to deal with it. You know what will deal with this fear? Over in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, perfect love cast out fear. Whoever fears has not been made perfect in love. And I really believe that this is the antidote. When you are sitting here saying, but I'm afraid, what happens if I fail and stuff? You could, you could say it in a lot of different ways, but what it boils down to is you just don't know how much God loves you. God has never created you to fail. It is not God's will for you to fail. He will help you. And if you truly believe that, if you've got a true word from God, if God has really put some vision in your heart, you can guarantee that God is going to be there to help bring it to pass. Faithful is He who calls you who also will do it. I'm confident of this very thing. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If you really understand how much God loves you, then that just overcomes this fear. And this is ultimately what happened with me. When the Lord showed me I'd become lazy, that I was afraid of stretching myself and failing and getting back into a place where there was pressure on me, it really boiled down to the fact that I just wasn't focused on how much He loved me. God wasn't asking me to do anything that was going to harm me. God only wants to do good. His plans for me are peace to give me an expected end. And I had to just go back and remind myself of how faithful God has been to me and how He loves me. And when I started doing that, I just rested in His love and am willing to step out and take a risk because I know that God's with me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. And it's the same for you. God loves you. God, if, he, if, if what you are trying to pursue is God, if it's a God-given vision, then there is always an anointing from God there to be able to accomplish it. And you need to rest in His love. That perfect love will cast that fear out of you and it will take this limit off of God. i tell you, that's powerful. Here's another example over in Matthew chapter 14. And this is where Peter walked on the water. Most of us are familiar with this, but let me just point out some things. The Lord appeared unto him in verse 27, and they were afraid in verse 26, cried out for fear. But verse 27, it says, But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. Just one word from God. Four letters in the English language was enough to walk on top of water. It was enough for a miracle. Did you know you don't have to have an entire paragraph from God. All you need is a word from God to totally, totally change your life. As a matter of fact, I can tell you that the way God leads me, He just gives me a little piece of information enough to get me going, enough to motivate me. And then as I head in that direction, he fills in the details. I've got a teaching entitled Lessons from Elijah. It's taken from 1 Kings chapter 17 primarily. And one of the points that I make in there is that Elijah got a word from God. 1 Kings 17, 1, he went and told Ahab, he says, Thus saith the Lord, it will not rain until I say so. And he delivered that word. And Ahab and his wife Jezebel were killing all of the prophets of the Lord. For him to identify himself with the Lord and say, Thus saith the Lord, he was putting himself right in the crosshairs. Ahab could have killed him. And yet he had a word from God and he acted on it. And then in the next verse it says, And after he had given that first word and put himself at potential risk of his life, then the word of the Lord came unto him and said, Go to the brook Cherith. I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. And it just dawned on me that he didn't get the second word. He didn't get the word that was going to promise him protection and provision until he had acted on the first word. Now see, there's a lot of people that they're praying about, God, what do you want me to do? And he gives you some direction. You have some leading from the Lord, but then you start saying, but if I do that, well, then what's going to happen here? Again, let me use an example of people coming to the Bible school. Let's say that somebody is praying about coming to Bible school and God tells them, yes, go to Karis Bible College. But then you start saying, all right, if I do that, well, then what about my job? 
What about my family here? What about my grandkids? What about my retirement? God, I don't know. You know, it's been so long since I've been in school. I'm not sure that I can take a test. And you start wanting an answer to all of these other things. And yet you hadn't acted on the word that God's given you. Why would God show you step number two through 10 if you aren't going to act on step number one? All that does is make you more accountable to Him. And if you don't follow through, it makes you even more guilty. See, God, because of His love for you, He just leads you step at a time. If He tells you to do something, if He tells you to come to Karis Bible College, you just do it. And then you find out how He's going to provide. How is it that He's going to sell your house? How is it that you're going to get a new job? How is it that all of these other things are going to happen? But see, those are uh, secondary things. Why should God show you step number two if you haven't completed step number one? Boy, that is really powerful. And see, this is what he did to um, Peter right here. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, then bid me come unto you on the water. And he just said, come. One word, and that one word was enough for Peter to walk on the water. He is the only person outside of Jesus that ever walked on water in scriptural account. That's a pretty powerful miracle. And let me just point some things out here. Did you know that there was 12 of them in this boat? Every one of them could have walked on the water. But there's a number of things. I hadn't got time to go through this whole deal. I've got a, a series entitled How to Be a Water Walker that will go through this whole series. And I think it's four or five teachings that just go into a lot more detail than what I'm doing right here. But one of the things I want to point out is that before Peter could walk on the water, he had to get out of the boat. He had to leave the safety of that boat. Or you could say it this way, he had to take a risk. He had to step out on the water. I don't know that any of these other apostles yelled at him and told him not to do it, but I can guarantee you every one of them were shocked that Peter even wanted to get out on the water and walk to Jesus. And I'm sure that they were thinking, Peter, you're going to drown. This was not normal. It is abnormal. There was 12 people in that boat and only one got out and walked on the water. And guess what? Sure enough, he failed. Sure enough, he began to sink when he took his eyes off of Jesus. He didn't do it perfectly, but instead of the Lord saying, you sorry thing, how come you doubt it? I'm going to let you drown. The Lord reached out and lifted him up. This is one of the ways that you get over the fear of taking a risk is just to understand that God loves you. And I believe that the Lord was actually pleased with Peter, even though Peter didn't do it perfectly. I believe that the Lord looked at that and thought, you know what? Peter is the only one of those 12 that even took the risk, that even got out of the boat. And even though he didn't do it perfectly, I believe God was pleased with that. You know, there's times that I haven't done things perfectly. When we moved into this building that I'm in right now, this building where my television studio is down in Colorado Springs, we have our Bible college up in Woodland Park about 20 miles away. But when we first moved in this building, we had to have $3.2 million to finish this. And I tried to take out a loan. It didn't work. Finally, God told me to just do it debt free. And you know, that was a huge risk. At the rate money had been coming in, I sat down and figured it out that at the, way we, at the rate we'd been able to save money, I would be over a hundred years old before we could get this building 
finished debt free. And it would have killed the school. It would have killed my ministry. It would have killed me. So it was a big risk. But you know what? We moved in. We wanted to move in before September. We wanted to move in in August of 2000 and um, what would that be? 2004 is when we wanted to move in. But we didn't get in until the end of November of 2004. So we were three or four months late. And when we moved into the building and we had the dedication service, I had one of my Bible college students come up to me and say, are you disappointed that you didn't make your goal? <laughs> and you know what? I actually laughed at her. And I said, man, I've never done anything perfectly in my life. I said, so what if we're three months late? We got in here debt-free. This was the biggest miracle I'd ever seen God provide for me at that time in my life. And I was just rejoicing and praising God. But see, there are some people that I don't know how they think, but they think that you've got to do things perfectly. If they don't have every base covered, if they don't have everything done perfectly, they will not take any risk. I've got offices all over the world. And did you know that I found that in most countries, people are not as big risk takers as they are in the United States. Now, I'm not sitting here saying the United States is perfectly because I, I believe that most people in the United States are too cautious and they don't take enough risk. But compared to the rest of the world, some of these other offices that I've got around the world, those people, they just, it's like you've got to eliminate all possibility of failure before you do anything. And that isn't the way it works. It cannot work that way. Matter of fact, I had a friend of mine that came here to our Bible college and he decided he wanted to open up a Bible school. So he went back. He sent out a four or five pages of questions to ask about how do you do this, 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 this. And I let my staff fill it out because they actually, you know, deal with those things more than I do. But the last question on there was something that only I could answer. And it was basically he was just saying, if you had it to do all over again, what would you do differently? And you know, I thought about that and there's a lot of things that are different now in our Bible college than it was 20 years ago when we started it. There's been a lot of changes. We are doing things so much more excellent. We're doing it so much better. And I thought of putting all of those things down, but you know what? I, got, I actually prayed about it and I said, Lord, with the limited resources that I had in 1994 when we started this school, with the people that I had available to help me and with the understanding that I had and everything where I was in 1994, I did the very best that I could do. And you know what? I, I wouldn't do anything differently. And so I wrote this friend and I said, based on where I was, I did the very best I knew how. Of course, things are better now, but I said, I, I just had to get started and my advice to him was, is take the things that you've learned from us, do the very best you can. But if you wait until you have everything perfect, until you have the perfect staff, faculty, until you have all of the finances, until you have all of the equipment, until everything is perfect, if you wait until it's perfect, you'll never start your school. And this friend of mine, he's pretty much a perfectionist. And guess what? He's never started his school, <laughs> amen. You know, we, we started, we did the best we knew how. We took advice from other people, but ultimately we just started. We had a word from God. We took that step 
And then we've taken the next step and the next step and the next step. I'm saying all of these things to say that, you know what? If you are afraid of failure, if you wait, if you're going to wait until you've got every question answered, till there is no risk, there's no faith involved, then you're never going to get anything done. That limits God. This perfectionist attitude, this attitude of you've got to do everything just exactly right, you can't make mistakes, it's just not so. God's never had anybody qualified working for Him yet and you aren't going to be the first person. Now, am I encouraging slothfulness? Am I encouraging you to just do things haphazardly? No, I'm saying do everything with as much excellence as you possibly can, but you don't need to be afraid of getting started. You don't need to be afraid of just doing something. You know, I actually had a guy come to one of my meetings in Denver and this guy had been called to the ministry 12 years before. He tried to go into the ministry. His wife didn't want to be a preacher's wife. They had so much strife, he divorced, she divorced him and took the kids and this guy had just been crushed. And for 12 years, he had been sitting there with a call of God on his life, but he just felt like he failed. How could God ever use him, etc. So he came to my meeting up at the Phipps Auditorium in Denver and he wrote me a letter after that meeting and my mother brought it to me. She thought it was hilarious. And he told me all of this story about how he had just felt like a failure. How could God ever use him? But then he said, after coming and hearing you and seeing God use you and blind eyes open and miracles happen, I decided I'll go back into the ministry. If God could use you, he could use anybody. <laughs> and my mother thought that was hilarious. But you know what? The point is that I am not the, the greatest vessel. If I was God, I probably wouldn't have chosen me. I haven't done everything perfectly. But you know what? I have stepped out and to the best of my ability, I've been following the Lord. And it's just like the scripture says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, that you see your calling, brethren, that not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen to base things of this world, foolish things, things that are despised, things that are nothing, to bring to naught things that are so that no flesh would glory in His presence. God has never had anybody qualified working for Him yet. And you aren't going to do things perfectly. God is not a taskmaster. He doesn't demand that you be perfect. He demands that you just depend upon Him. He will carry you. And I am a living testimony of this. God has blessed me and used me far beyond what I'm able to do on my own. Many of you have heard me tell this story, but my mother died when she was 96. That was in 2009. And right before she died, she was asking me one last time, what's God doing in the ministry? And I was telling her about not only the U.S., but internationally. And she was so blessed by it. But then my mother, I mean, on her deathbed, stuck her little bony finger right in my face. And she said, Andy, you know that's God. And I said, yes, ma'am, I know it's God. And then she says, you aren't smart enough to do all of that. And you know what? It's absolutely true. I, God has blessed me beyond myself. I am not smart enough to do what I'm doing. I, I don't have enough wisdom to manage 300 plus employees. But I have done what I know to do. And God has brought me people who are helping me do it. 
I'm not smart enough to manage $40 million a year. That's what we've had in the past. It's going to have to increase. It's going to be a lot more than that. But I'm not smart enough. I don't have the business sense to do all of these things. It is not my great wisdom and talent and ability, but you know one thing that I have done? I have taken the risk. I have stepped out. I have done things when in the natural it looked impossible. And yet I've done it. When we started our Bible college, I asked these people. God showed me who to ask and Wendell Parr was one of them. He left a church that he had been pastoring for nearly 30 years. He was very successful, had his dream home. He left everything, walked away from it, moved here to Colorado Springs and his first day on the job, I had him, Linus Lefevre and Don Crow come into my office and we sat down and I said, all right, so who knows how to run a Bible school? I said, I've never been to Bible school. What do we do? <laughs> and Wendell told me later that, man, it just terrified him. Here he had given up everything to come to this school and the guy who was running it said, what do we do? I didn't know. We didn't know if anybody would show up. Turns out hardly nobody did. And you know what? We just got started. We just, I just obeyed. God told me to start a Bible school. I didn't know how to do it, but we learned. And praise God today, I believe we got the best thing on the planet. And you know what? You just, you can't be afraid of taking risks. You got to take the limits off God. You can't wait until you have it all figured out. You'll never get anything done. Man, that's huge. I've had people tell me before, if God just gives me the money, if he does all of these things, then I'll be there. You know what? If God tells you to come to Bible college, then you go whether you have the money or not. I had a guy tell me one time, but I don't have any money. I'm sleeping under bridges. And he was in North Carolina, I think. And he says, I'm living on the street. I'm sleeping under bridges. I said, we got streets and bridges out here in Colorado. I said, if you're in a mess there, come out here and be in a mess. Now, I don't believe it'll stay that way. I believe that you do what God tells you to do and he will make provision. But I'm saying that there is no excuse. You know, I, was, I used this example already, but over in 1 Kings chapter 17, when the Lord gave this second word to Elijah and told him to go to the brook Cherith, he says, I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. He didn't send his supply to where he was. He sent his supply to there where he told him to go. If Elijah would have stayed where he was, then God said, I have commanded. That means it was already done. He had already spoken to these ravens to bring bread and flesh every morning and evening. And so since God had already commanded them, they were already on their way. The supply was there. But if he would have stayed where he was, the supply would have been there and he could have died of starvation. And some people would have looked at that and said, well, God wasn't faithful to him. God didn't meet his needs. No, God meant his needs, but he sent him there where he told him to go, not where he was. And the reason some of you aren't experiencing God's provision is because you aren't all there. You're too much here. You're waiting until God does everything. And then you're going to go there. But that's not the way it works. It's like in football, they throw, don't throw the ball to where the receiver is. They throw the ball to where the receiver is going. They lead him. God is leading you. If he has told you to do something, then you go there. You do what God told you to do. And when you get there, your supply will be there. 
that's one of the ways you can tell that you're in the center of God's will is because the provision is coming. Some of you are waiting on provision before you act on the vision and that's not the way that it works. I can show you many examples in the Bible of the exact same thing happening for other people. Matter of fact, I was using Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 where he got a word from God, went to the king and delivered it and put his life in jeopardy by doing so. And he didn't know what the Lord was going to do. He didn't have the second word. He didn't have the promise of provision and protection until he had completed the first. And I could just go on and on and show you this over and over and over in Scripture. If you are going to take the limits off of God, you are going to have to be willing to take risk. I'm not talking about foolish risk. I'm not talking about you going out and just doing stupid stuff and you throwing caution to the wind. But I'm saying once you get a word from God, you got to get out of the boat. I was using this too about Peter had to get out of that boat. He had to leave the relative security of the boat and step out on the water where in the natural it made not any sense whatsoever. But he had to leave the security of the boat. You can't walk on water until you get out of the boat. And there are some of you that will not get out of the boat and yet you're wanting the testimony of walking on water. You're wanting a testimony about God providing and doing all of these things. You know, I've used as a testimony this new campus we're building in Woodland Park and we just completed a $32 million project and did it debt free. There are some of you that would love to have a testimony like that, but there's many of you that wouldn't do what I did. You wouldn't talk about it. You wouldn't say that you were going to do it. You wouldn't commit to doing it debt free in three years. You want the testimony, but you don't want to do what it takes to get the testimony. You, you want to avoid the test, but you want the testimony. Without a test, it's just demony. Amen. I think it was Joyce Myers that said that. You know what? You need to get out and take a risk. You've got to have faith in God and believe that you've heard from God and that God will not let you down. It always amazes me about people being afraid to get out of the boat. And yet, if you go back to that situation I was using yesterday in Matthew chapter 14, there was very little security in that boat. It says that the boat was full and that they were drowning and they were afraid. If they stayed in that boat and if they didn't get a miracle from God, they were going to drown. And yet, there was a resistance on 11 of the 12 people to get out of the boat. Why? It was going down. There was very little difference between being in the boat and being out on the water. They might as well have stepped out in faith and risked something and believed God. He had a command there, come. And they could have taken that and just walked to the other shore. But they were afraid to get out of a sinking boat. You know what? There is a great comparison here that many of you you want to do something miraculous. You would love to have a testimony of walking on the water, but you're afraid to leave the sinking boat. You're afraid to get away from the conventional wisdom that the unbelievers use. You're afraid to do all of these things, and yet how's that working for everybody? People are miserable. There are people that are committing suicide because of the financial crisis. There's all of these things going on, and yet everybody's afraid to be different. I tell you, if you look around, the world is sinking. People are miserable. It's not working for people. Why are we so afraid to do something different? 
again, I'm not a perfect example, but I have trusted God. I have stepped out. I guarantee you, I am glad that I've taken the risk that I have. I'm glad that I've done what I've done. Matter of fact, if I have any regrets, it's that I'm not more aggressive, that I'm not trusting and believing God more. And God just spoke to me about that this year. And so praise God, I'm stepping it up and we're believing God for even bigger things. I got to have $53 million in the next 20 months. Amen. And that's on top of our normal $40 million a year budget that we have to pay my employees and the, and the airtime and all of these things that we do. You know what? I'm stepping it up. But I, I believe that God's wanting me to do even more. Let me use an example here about uh, Gideon. In the sixth chapter of the book of, of Judges is where the angel of the Lord came unto Gideon and he said in verse 11, there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which is in Ophrah that, pertain, uh, that pertaineth unto Joash the Abizrite and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now the background of this is that the Israelites had been given the land. They had conquered it, but because they turned away from God, other nations had come in and had conquered them. And the Midianites at this time were oppressing the Israelites. They were living like slaves. And instead of this Israelite, Gideon, threshing his wheat out in the open, he was doing it in secret behind a wine press, hiding it because the Midianites would come down and take all of his grain from him. And so here he was in this terrible situation. And in verse 12, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And you know, I love Gideon's response here. He said in verse 13, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all the miracles which our father told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. You know, some people look at that as a terrible thing, way that he responded, but I think it's good. Because what this shows is, see, Gideon wasn't just accepting the situation as it was and saying, well, this is the way it is and we're just depressed. He was discontent with his situation. He knew it was wrong. He was the one that was supposed to be the head and not the tail, above and not beneath is what it said in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And he had heard the stories about how God had done miracles before for the Israelites and he was dissatisfied living this substandard life. So when this angel said, the Lord is with you, you're a mighty man of valor, he immediately said, if I'm a mighty man of valor, then how come I'm not seeing it? You know, the parallel to us today is that there's many places, but John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus said, The works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father. The Lord said we should be doing the same works that He is doing. And some people debate, well, the greater works are being on radio and television and being able to be on the Internet and reach people worldwide. Jesus never did that in His physical earthly ministry. I'm not even going to debate what you think the greater works are what are you going to do with the part of the verse that says, the works that I do shall he do also? And Jesus went about healing all that were oppressed of the devil and blessing people, raising the dead, opening blind eyes. Just focus on that part of the verse. Don't even worry about the greater works until you get to where you do the same works. 
We should be seeing the miraculous power of God. We ought to be seeing the dead raised, blind eyes open. We ought to see people delivered from demonic oppression and depression. And we ought to see prosperity. And we should be seeing the supernatural power of God in our churches today. And yet I go into some of these spirit-filled, tongue-talking, word-of-faith churches, and I see miracles happen. And I've actually had people come up that grew up in that church, 20 and 30 years old, and say it's the first time they ever saw a miracle in their life. That's not the way that it should be. And I think it's good to have an attitude and say, well, if we are supposed to be able to do the same works that Jesus did, then why aren't we seeing it? I think that that's healthy. Instead of just accepting the status quo and saying, well, this is just church as usual. Instead of being able to print your bulletin a year in advance and tell what's going to happen in that service and the Holy Spirit never changes anything. I think that things ought to be different than that. And I think it's good to have a holy dissatisfaction. And this is the way Gideon was. And he says, if I'm a mighty man of valor, well, then why is all of this happening? And you know, the Lord responded to this and, and it says in verse 14, the Lord looked upon him and said, go in this thy might and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of, Midian, of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? In other words, if you can take this holy dissatisfaction and a desire to see the fullness of the things God has for us, and if you can take that and couple it with the God is with you, now He's going to flow through you, then you know what? You can accomplish what God calls you to do. But you can't be satisfied with the status quo. That limits God. You can't do it in your own might. You have to have God with you. But you couple those things together and praise God, you will see the supernatural come to pass. And so the story of Gideon goes on for a number of chapters here, but here basically is what happened. The Lord said, gave him a vision, gave him a word and said, you are going to deliver the Israelites out from under the control of the Midianites and you're going to do it. And so Gideon began to start taking steps in that direction. You know, the first thing he did, he went and took the altar that his father had made to a pagan god and he took that altar and destroyed it and cut down the entire grove of trees where it was. And in the morning when the people rose up, somehow they knew that Gideon was responsible for all this. And so they came to his father and they wanted to kill Gideon. They said, deliver him to us and we're going to kill him. And he, he turned on them and he says, whoever wants to put Gideon to death for tearing down these altars, bring him forth and let's kill him right now. And the reason was, he says, if this was truly a God, well, then let this God defend himself. How dare you just have to sit there and defend him? If he was truly a God that he threw this altar down, then let him deal with Gideon. And so they changed his name from Gideon to Jerubbaal, which means let Baal plead. If Baal is really a God, let Baal take care of Gideon. And they called him Jerubbaal from that time on. So anyway, that was his first hurdle. And then the Lord told him to send messengers out to all of the Israelites and the whole nation showed up and there was over 30,000 people. Well, there was more than that in the beginning. There was just tens of thousands of people that showed up and the Lord said, there's too many people here for me to get the victory. Boy, this is another great truth and I could spend the whole day talking about this. I just want to hit this quickly because I got another point I'm wanting to get to. But you know what? Sometimes we want 
we want all of these resources. We want everything to be perfect so that there's just no faith involved in it. God delights in doing things in a way that only He gets the credit for it. He said, there's too many people here. If you bring all of these people to battle, then Israel will think that it was their great numbers that did it. So Gideon got up and he says, anybody who's just newly married, anybody who's got possessions that you have to take care of, or anybody who's afraid, let them leave. And I mean tens of thousands of people left. They were still left with 30,000 people after that. And so the Lord said, bring them down to the brook and watch the way that they drink. And some of them laid down on their belly and just literally stuck their face in the water and drank that way. Other people knelt on one knee and just cupped their hand and raised the water up and drank. And the Lord said, pick those that knelt and raised the water up. And those are the ones I'm going to deliver you from. People try and make major points out of this that those who knelt down were the ones who were, you know, observant. They were diligent, whereas the others were sloppy. And I don't know, you might be able to make a point out of that, but I believe that the reason God chose those who knelt on one knee is because they only numbered 300. If, if there had only been 300 that laid on their belly and drank straight out of the stream, I believe God would have chosen them. It wasn't any significance about the way they did it. It was the fact that God was trying to pare this army down to a number that was so ridiculously low that when the miracle came, God would get the credit for it and not Gideon. And so he chose the 300 men who took the water in their hands and that became his army and he sent the rest of them home. And then they went out against the Midianites and the Midianites, it says, were like the sand on the seashore. There was potentially millions of them. They were vastly outnumbered. And Gideon began to limit God. He began to waver was God really going to do this? Because he was just looking at things in the natural. And so the Lord did a number of things for him. One thing, Gideon said, Lord, if you're really going to deliver this host into my hand, then I'm going to put this fleece out on the ground. And I want the ground to be wet with dew, but I want the fleece to be dry. In other words, that was abnormal. Typically, if you'd put a fleece out, it would get dew on it just like the grass. So he gave this, this test to God. When he woke up in the morning, sure enough, the fleece was totally dry and the ground was wet with dew. But then he thought, well, maybe this was just a mistake. Maybe it was a coincidence. He says, tomorrow I'm going to put the fleece out and I want the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry. So he did that. And when he woke up, he was able to wring an entire bowl full of water out of the fleece. And all of this was trying to convince himself and get rid of this fear that limited what God could do with him. And so he finally got bold enough that he took this army. He was camped, ready to attack the next day. And the Lord told him, he says, Gideon, if you are still afraid to go and fight with the host, he says, then take you a couple of men and sneak down into the Midianites camp at night. And I'll confirm to you that I'm going to do this. So Gideon went down. He snuck into the the first tent that he came to, he heard two men talking and one of them had had a dream. And in the valley was this multitude of Midianite soldiers and all of their tents. And then this huge barley loaf comes tumbling down the hill and it just flattens all of the Midianites and totally destroys them. Now that's an amazing dream. 
But the interpretation, the other guy just instantly said, this is nothing but the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. You know, it's one thing to have a dream like that, but to have the other guy interpret it and apply it to Gideon, overcoming all of the Midianites, that is just supernatural. It's miraculous. It's miraculous that this happened to be in the very tent that Gideon was outside listening out of all of the tens of thousands of tents. I mean, it was such a confirmation that Gideon went back and praise God was able to accomplish what God had put in his heart. But see, he had to overcome these fears. I'm telling you, a fear of failure, a fear of taking risk, it stops God. It limits God. And this is what God spoke to me, that I was limiting him by being afraid to step out, afraid that I might fail. And finally, his perfect love just cast this out. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go for it. You know, I've still got these great goals in front of me. I've got this next project is $53 million I need in 20 months. And beyond that, I've got another $10 million project that is on the horizon. We're dealing with it right now. And there are tens of millions of other dollars coming. And you know what? I don't have the money for all of that. I don't even have one hundredth of all of the money right now that I need in the next few years. And so there is a fear or a potential fear of failure. I, don't, I can't guarantee that things are going to work. But you know, I've thought this through and I would rather go out believing God, try it and fail than to sit here and know what God has put in my heart and just be afraid to step out. I'm going to go for it. And I really believe I'll make it. You just hide and watch. Some of you don't believe it, but it will happen. You know, one of my biggest partners at the time, this was back in 2001, he was my largest partner, the biggest contributor to our ministry. And right after uh, 9-11, 2001, his daughter was a medical doctor and she had already planned a medical mission. To, I forget exactly where it was, but it was right where Taliban was and all of this stuff was going on. And right after the terrorist attacks, everybody was fearful about what was going to happen. And he wanted her to cancel her medical missionary trip to that area. And she wouldn't do it. And so he called me and got me on the phone and he says, I want you to tell her that this is stupid to cancel this trip. Don't go over there. And so she got on the phone and I started asking her some questions. I said, is this what God told you to do? And she says, absolutely. This is God. I know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And you know what I did? I told her, I said, go. <laughs> and my partner was just, that's not why he called me. He wanted me to say no, but I said, you know what? The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And if that's what God told her to do, that is the safest place to be. In contrast to that, our first mission trip that we took from CBC, one of our graduates, her husband didn't want her to get on a plane because he had a fear of planes. So he made her stay home. She didn't go on that trip with us. And right out here outside of Colorado Springs, she was driving home and a person came across the line, hit her head on, and she died in a car wreck. She would have been much better off flying on that plane to the other side of the world and being in the center of God's will. I'm telling you, the safest place to be is where God tells you to be. You can't let fear of something stop you. You can't limit God through fear of failure, fear of risk.